The following message comes to you from the pulpit of Macedonia Primitive Baptist Church in Ackerman, Mississippi. We invite you to visit Macedonia Primitive Baptist Church for worship services every Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m. Macedonia is located at 11 Staten Road on Highway 15, five miles north of Ackerman, Mississippi. For more information about Macedonia Primitive Baptist Church, you may visit our website at macedonia-pbc.org. I'd like to return to the book of Acts this morning as we've been trying to consider the uh, identifying attributes of the thriving kingdom and the establishment of the kingdom of God in the church that we see in the book of Acts. And I'd like to begin by way of introduction this morning in Acts chapter 2 and verse 43. And we'd like to consider signs, wonders, and healings. There was an amazing, special manifestation of spiritual gifts and miraculous signs in the early church that were for a specific purpose and for a specific time. And the miraculous manifestation of those spiritual gifts have passed away from the time of the apostles. But I believe that it's also true that there should be an identifying attribute of the kingdom of God that there are, in a spiritual sense, because remember, this is a spiritual kingdom, signs and wonders and healings. There, there should be testimonies in the kingdom of God that people hear that and they're like, wow, wow, look what God did. Everything you see in these, these healings and these miraculous sign gifts, nobody looked at that and said, wow, that's really impressive that some man did that. It's really impressive that, that this man had the ability to speak into, that this man had the ability to heal somebody. They're like, wow, this must be of God, right? And we pray that there would be a testimony in the kingdom of God that people would hear stories about how the Lord and the Spirit is moving in the kingdom of God. And they would say, wow, wow. And that people come into the kingdom of God with brokenness and with problems and with, with struggling with sin. And they encounter healing, healing. And, and that should be the balm of Gilead that we should offer to the world in the kingdom of God, that should be an identifying attribute. But we understand, though, it has a much different application than we see in a miraculous manifestation here in the book of Acts, okay? <laughs> Acts chapter 2, and this is right after verse 42, these four core activities of the church that we try to focus on so much that we do our best to try to uphold in the primitive original Baptist church. They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, and fellowship, and breaking of bread, and in prayers, and then throughout the rest of the chapter, uh, those few verses, you have the effects of their commitment to, the, to do those four things steadfastly and do them really well. And one of those identifying attributes of the original church in the kingdom of God, because of their steadfast commitment of those four things, verse 43, fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done, notice, by the apostles. Many wonders and signs were done by the apostles. And this is a very important um, theme all throughout the book of Acts. I want to highlight just a couple of them of amazing manifestations of the, um, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in the miraculous sense of these, these spiritual gifts. Obviously, one of the most prominent is Acts chapter, the beginning of Acts chapter 2, right? 
as on the day of Pentecost, the Lord poured out his spirit with cloven tongues of fire for the apostles to communicate and preach in tongues that they did not know. And everyone received that uh, for the purpose of their edification, for the purpose of the spread of the kingdom. We'll come back to that. Come back to that in a minute. Acts chapter 5, <clears throat> Acts chapter 5 and in verse 12. And by the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were wrought among the people. And they were all with one accord in Solomon's porch. And of the rest durst no man join himself to them, but the people magnified them, and the believers were the more added to the Lord, multitudes, both of men and women. Insomuch that they brought forth the sick into the streets and laid them on beds and couches that at least the shadow of Peter passing by might overshadow them. And there came also a multitude out of the cities round about Jerusalem and bringing sick folks and them that were vexed with unclean spirits. And this is very important, by the way. They were healed every one. They were healed every one. There's some people that are charlatans today that give the pretense of faith healing. And for some reason, they don't have people with wheelchairs coming up to the front of the line. There's not a big stack of wheelchairs that aren't being used anymore. If you have the gift of healing, as the apostles did, you're going to heal every single person. And if you don't, then you're just a charlatan, okay? But <clears throat> the, the Spirit of God was moving so strongly in the apostles that I don't necessarily know if this is saying that the shadow, just them being in the shadow of Peter healed them, but the people thought that just being in the shadow of Peter, I don't necessarily think that just because the, the light of the shadow crossed somebody that that's what healed them, but the people wanted to be so close to Peter that they thought maybe if his, if his shadow just goes over me, I might be healed of my infirmity. Now that's, that's something, isn't it? That the Spirit of God was moving so strongly that people wanted to be around the disciples of Christ in such close proximity because the Spirit of God was overflowing out of them so much that just being around them, I have the hope of healing. Boy, I tell you, that's the kind of uh, way that people should view us in our community, right? That they want to be around us. I hope, I hope we're kind and gracious and generous and loving. But just being in, in the presence of those that are being moved by the Holy Spirit in the kingdom of God, there's going to be some degree of benefit and healing and restoration just by being around you. And we certainly pray that the Spirit of God would be poured out in the kingdom of God to that manifest degree today. I want to highlight one more in uh, Acts chapter 19, Acts chapter 19, verse 11. God wrought special miracles by the hands of Paul so that from his body were brought unto the sick handkerchiefs or aprons and the diseases departed from them and the evil spirits went out of them. I mean, this was an environment that just being, the people thought, that just being in the presence or in the shadow of Peter, I can be healed of my infirmity. And I want to just, the, the apostles have touched random garments like handkerchiefs and aprons, and I want to touch the same thing that they've touched because I think I can be healed by, by just touching a handkerchief. 
I mean, it was just amazing, the special outpouring of the Holy Spirit that was occurring in the establishment of the church and in the kingdom of God. Now, we've reached a time after the death of the apostles, and even not just the death of the apostles, because John uh, died on the Isle of Patmos later on in the first century, you know, let's just say 95 AD or something. But there, there are no indications in either the scriptures or in church history of this miraculous manifestation, of documented references of this miraculous manifestation of spiritual gifts after probably about 60 AD, okay? We're going to come back to that and, and expound on that. <clears throat> but I think it's important for us to understand, especially in the environment of Christianity that we're in, uh, that there are some groups that believe in the, the special miraculous manifestation of spiritual gifts still being applicable today, I believe it's very important for us to have the correct biblical understanding of the purpose of these for a specific time, but then the way in which God uses spiritual gifts today, okay? So uh, when I say, when I say that we believe the scriptures to teach that those miraculous manifestations of spiritual gifts have ceased, that, that would be termed a cessationist in the sense that these miraculous manifestations have ceased, okay? When I say that, I also want to give a, a few clarifications that number one, when I say that miraculous spiritual gifts have ceased off of the scene, that does not mean that we don't believe in miracles, okay? Uh, miracles are things that are contrary to nature. And it's very contrary to nature for a man to be able to speak in a language that he's not trained in, right? That's contrary to nature. It's contrary to nature for a man to touch somebody and, and evil spirits be cast out or be healed of some infirm. That, that's contrary to nature. But the way that God moves in a miraculous way today is not by men going and touching people and casting out. He moves by the prayers of his saints in the church, right? In uh, James chapter 5, what's the pattern? What's the pattern if any man is sick? Okay, now there came a time later on that they were, they were healing everyone that was sick. But uh, Paul wrote in 2 Timothy that uh, Trophimus, I've left him at uh, Miletus, Miletum, uh, and he's sick. I left him there, okay? So the Apostle Paul, there came a time later on, that was penned in 2 Timothy, we'll just say that was penned sometime around 65 AD, okay? Well, if Paul, th those gifts were already kind of diminishing because Paul had the ability to heal people, right? And his dear brother was sick, but he said, I left him sick. Well, that's an indication that that gift was beginning to, to pass off. Right? But the purpose of these gifts, the purpose of these gifts were to publicly manifest, number one, Jesus Christ as the Son of God, to identify true apostles from false apostles, okay? And then to prove the authenticity of the church that was being established for people that had no background and knowledge of the Jewish word of God, okay? Now, in the Christian environment today, there are some that would say that these 
the miraculous manifestation of these spiritual gifts is still applicable today. <clears throat> However, another important aspect in this discussion is that um, in Acts chapter 8, you have Philip going down and he preaches to the Samaritans and he baptizes them. And then he calls upon the apostles to come and to lay hands on these people in Samaria so that they would receive this special gift of the Holy Ghost. Not that they would be born again, but they would receive the special gift of the Holy Ghost. Now, Philip, Philip was a deacon, okay? And Philip had received the laying on of hands as a deacon, because that's how men are ordained for the purpose of a deacon, laying on of hands. So he had been laid on by the hands of the apostles, but he did not have the ability to lay hands on someone to then transfer that special gift to the Holy Ghost. Do you see that? That's very important. That means that this special manifestation of the Holy Ghost was not transferable from the apostles because Philip did not have that authority. So therefore, along with the teaching of Scripture and that, that pattern, that means that the special manifestation of the Holy Ghost, of these sign gifts, uh, passed off with the apostles. I, I got sidetracked a little earlier. We still believe in miracles, okay? We believe in miracles, but it's by the prayers of the saints. And in James chapter 5, they tell you to come. If you are sick, you call for the elders of the church, and we have, it speaks of anointing oil. That's more of a medicinal benefit in the first century. Uh, and we can do that if you want to, you know. Uh, if you want, to, want us to sprinkle some, sprinkle some oil on you, we can do that. But, but that's more of a medicine kind of application in the first century. But you pray for one another in the body of the church, lay hands on them, and that's one of the primary ways that God miraculously heals. And, and I, I don't want to ever put anyone on the spot, and I'd never uh, force anyone to do that. But listen, if you're facing, and you know, it doesn't have to be cancer, okay? But if you are facing challenges in your life, you know, sometimes no one would even consider asking for the uh, the men of the church, the brothers of the church, to lay hands on them uh, unless I have some terminal diagnosis. Listen, we'll lay hands on you for what you stand in need of, okay? Because we want, you need emotional healing. You need uh, much more spiritual healing. You need much more than just physical healing in many circumstances, right? And the way that you beseech the Lord. You pray for it individually, and hopefully you ask for individual people to pray for you, but there is a special manifestation that God takes heed to when you request for the church to lay hands on you as a, as a body, and the Lord many times will answer and heal in a miraculous way when you see fit to request for the church to do that. So we believe in miracles, and we absolutely believe in spiritual gifts, Right? Now, by the time that these miraculous spiritual gifts have passed off, the book of Romans, you know, it's kind of interesting, by the way, um, the only book, outside of the book of Acts, there's only one book that addresses miraculous spiritual gifts, and that's 1 Corinthians, okay, 1 Corinthians. There's a reference to it in 2 Corinthians, but he's saying, when I was among you, when I was physically with the people there in Corinth, I did these things. So he wasn't teaching it. He was referring to a past event when he was there in person in, in Corinth. 
But the Apostle Paul wrote the book of Romans, right? <clears throat> right. And he also wrote 1 Corinthians. But it's kind of interesting that his, his amazing doctrinal treatise, not just a doctrinal treatise, but his practical treatise in the last few chapters of Romans, when he starts talking about spiritual gifts in Romans chapter 12, he doesn't speak about any of those miraculous spiritual gifts. Same man wrote it just a couple years later. You know, five to eight years after he wrote 1 Corinthians where he talks about all these miraculous manifestations of spiritual gifts. He doesn't say anything about tongues. He doesn't say anything about, about healings and casting out devils and all this stuff. He doesn't say anything about that in the book of Romans. What does he talk about in, in regards to spiritual gifts in Romans? The gift of exhortation, the gifts of ministry, the gifts of service, the gifts of ruling, the gift of faith, you see? So every time that Paul wrote and he talked about spiritual gifts, he really only talked about miraculous spiritual gifts one time. And 1 Corinthians, it was one of the earliest books that were penned in the chronology of the authorship of uh, the epistles of the New Testament. Okay, so when I say, when I say that we do not believe in the miraculous manifestation of spiritual gifts, we still believe in miracles. And we still believe in spiritual gifts, right? But just not in this outpouring that was for a specific time and for a specific purpose in the establishment of the early church. Now, surprisingly, <clears throat> surprisingly, there have only been three periods in the entire Bible where signs and wonders and special identification and manifestation of the Spirit have been identified. 4,000 years that the Bible covers, there's really only been three periods. Okay? The first of that is Moses when he was in Egypt, the time of Elijah and Elisha, and then Jesus and the apostles. So just think about that. As you've read the Bible, there are miracles that happen all throughout. But Miracles that for the purpose of signs, those are really the only three time periods that you have this amazing manifestation of miraculous signs, and they're all for the same purpose. <clears throat> they were all manifested for a specific purpose. Number one, for the purpose of setting Jehovah God and Jesus Christ apart as the true authentic God in the face of many false gods. Then, to identify true prophets from false prophets. And to identify, going back to the, to the true prophets, this is who truly is speaking on behalf of the Lord, thus saith the Lord, whereas some false prophets were saying they were speaking on, you know, that's, that's a consistent occurrence in the Old Testament, right? There were some men that, that were saying, we're speaking on behalf of the Lord. But guess what? Their prophecy didn't come to pass. It failed, okay? So those three periods were for the purpose of identification and public manifestation that God is the true God in the face of false gods, and these are the true prophets in the face of false prophets, okay? Let's think about Moses, right? Israel had been in Egypt for hundreds of years, and even if it's just by osmosis, 
they did not have the correct view of Jehovah God that they should have had, and they had a little bit too high of a view of those Egyptian gods from just being around it day in, day out for hundreds of years. So what did God do? He sent special signs and wonders to destroy those Egyptian gods in the sight of the entire world, but especially in the sight of his people, and to identify that Moses is my true servant, right? And then, by the way, how was it that Moses was identified to be the true servant of the Lord? Because you know what? Those Egyptians, they had a little bit of liberty to do a couple things. You know, they, they had snake consent for a little bit before... You know, Moses' snake swallowed it up. They could make a little bit of blood. But when it got to the flies and the locusts and the darkness and all that, they couldn't stand up to all that. Okay? So by the end of that, everyone knew, even the Egyptians, even the unregenerate, wicked heart of Pharaoh knew beyond a shadow of a doubt, this is God doing this. <laughs> there is something bigger than me. And, and I can say definitively that Moses is this God's true servant. You see, publicly manifesting God's the true God in the face of many false gods and publicly manifesting true prophets. Okay, now, Elijah and Elisha. That was during a time where Israel was worshiping Baal and there were many false prophets who told the kings anything they wanted to hear, right? Well, God sent special signs to identify Elijah and then later on Elisha they are my true servants and that Baal is a false God and I am the true God, okay? Now, fast forward to Jesus and the, and the apostles. This was during an environment, I mean, you got paganism everywhere, but listen, the structure of Jewish religion during that day was dark and wicked because it was controlled by these, many of them, unregenerate, Pharisees. So even those that gave the pretense of religion and gave the pretense of worshiping Jehovah God, it was a total fabrication of what God had set up. So God had to destroy all of those systems of religion, not just paganism, but that old guard of Pharisee Jewish religion. So what happened when, you know, let's take, for example, you have, we'll just, we'll just call, Jesus called them white sepulchers. So, you know, I think we can uh, operate under Jesus's words there. There were some men that, uh, let's just say you went to synagogue on a, on a regular day and you have a man who is an unregenerate man, a white sepulcher, and he's teaching you something according to the word of God that is false, it's a misinterpretation of God's word. Well, what's the way for Jesus to identify himself as the true servant of God in an environment where you have people who give the pretense of religion? What's the way that he's going to identify himself that I'm the true Messiah? By these signs and wonders, right? I mean, yes, this, uh, this Pharisee may have a, a false interpretation of, uh, of the word of God, but he can't deny that this man who used to be lame is now walking and leaping and praising God. He can't deny that. And the only way, that, you know, that's what Nicodemus said when he came to the Lord, we know that no man can do the things you're doing except he come from God. I mean, you, you are identifying by your actions that you are a true servant of the Lord. 
And then you make your way to the apostles. This, there were signs and wonders that were specifically identified of the apostles. Second uh, Corinthians chapter 12 and in verse 12, truly the signs of an apostle were wrought among you in all patience and signs and wonders and mighty deeds. The church at Ephesus in Revelation chapter 2 the Lord commended them because they had tried those that were false apostles and found them to be a liar. Okay? Now, how do you try? Okay. Now, understand, the reason why this was so important during this time is because at this time, you did not have the full canon of Scripture. Okay? Now, once you have the Word of God, it's not as difficult to identify true apostles from false apostles, right? Once you have the written Word of God, now you have a standard to test them by. But until the time that the whole scriptures were penned to where you know you could test them by that, how did you know? I mean, Satan, he says this in the previous chapter, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, Satan will transform himself to an angel of light and Satan will send false apostles. And he did in the first century. So how do you know if somebody's a false apostle or a true apostle? <laughs> well, the church at Ephesus did correctly and they said, okay, you say that you're an apostle from the Lord. We know that true apostles have the ability to heal everyone that they come in contact with. Give it a go. Go heal somebody. Go, go cast out devils. Go prophesy. Because that was the only way, right? That was the only way for a public manifestation of who's a true apostle and who's a false apostle. So they said, all right, you, you believe to be an apostle? Go show us. Go show us. Heal these people. You, uh... You speak in tongues that you don't know. And that was what identified a true apostle from a false apostle, okay? But it is kind of uh, interesting to think about the fact Moses was only a couple years, really. Elijah and Elisha, they had a pretty long ministry. We'll just give them 80 years. But there is no scriptural or church record other than the book of Acts and other in 1 Corinthians, there is, which were, 1 Corinthians, we'll say that was penned 58 to 60 AD. There is no scriptural or church history records of the manifestation of these spiritual gifts after about 60 AD. Okay? And as we said earlier, there were people later on in Paul's ministry that he left sick. Because he didn't heal them. And then when he got around to read uh, to writing Romans, he was not talking about miraculous spiritual gifts anymore. He was talking about exhortation. He was talking about giving. He was talking about leadership. Okay? Let's go to Mark chapter 16. Mark chapter 16. So... Very brief period, and if you put all those together, if you put all those together, the Bible covers about 4,000 years, maybe, maybe 150 years out of those 4,000 were there time periods where these miraculous signs were happening, okay? Very small percentage. By the way, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 12, he said, an evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign. The only sign that this generation is going to get 
is that I'm going to be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth, just like Jonah was in the whale's belly, and then I'm going to be resurrected. So the only sign that we need right now to identify, okay, what's the purpose of signs? What's the purpose of signs? To identify Jesus is the true God, or God's the true God, and who's a true prophet. You want to know the only identifying sign you need now? The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That's it. That's the only sign you need because that validated him as God. So we don't have to have all these signs anymore. And by the way, speaking in tongues, speaking in tongues, uh, Acts chapter 2, you have 15 different nationalities that are listed there that are all in one place at one time. Now, how is the Spirit going to communicate to 15 different nationalities that all speak different languages how are, how are men outside of the supernatural moving of the Holy Spirit in what did happen on the day of Pentecost, how are all of those people going to receive the preaching of the gospel? In a natural sense, it's not possible, right? Because these were just unlearned and ignorant Galileans, right? They didn't know all these different languages. So what did the Holy Spirit do? It moved in a special way that everyone heard what they said in their own language. Okay? Now, why was it that the apostles, when they, you know, Paul, he goes on this trip. He goes, to, he goes to Ephesus. He goes to Macedonia. He goes to Philippi. He goes to Thessalonica. He goes to all these cities. And it, languages were a lot different back then. You know, now we have like a national language and everyone's kind of taught the same language. But even people that are in close proximity, you're going to have, you may, it's kind of like this in Africa. Like you, you have maybe a general language that most people speak. But then, just from city to city, you're going to have individual dialects that a person going from city to, is not going to be able to communicate fully with someone, even if somebody lives like 30 miles away, okay? So, uh, the apostle, and, and Paul was a very learned man, right? But he didn't know every single little bitty dialect of every single little bitty city he showed up in. So, if he showed up in Thessalonica and he didn't know how to speak the Thessalonicans' language, how's he going to preach to the Thessalonicans? Right? How's he going to preach to him? He can't in a natural sense. So what did the Lord do? He blessed him to speak in the Thessalonican language, or at least allowed them to hear it in Thessalonican language. Now, is there a need to speak in an external? That's why he went from city to city to city, and he spoke the Thessalonican language to them. He spoke the Ephesian language to the Ephesians. He spoke the, the Philippian language to the people in Philippi. And then... He went to a different city, and then what did he tell him to do? Okay, now you ordain elders and deacons in this city. Why? <laughs> because it's going to be a lot more edifying for people that talk the same language to preach to you than me, right? I mean, the Lord moved in a special way for, to establish the church, but after that, let's get people all talking the same language so people can be edified. And 1 Corinthians 14 is very clear. We're not going to have time to really go in depth there, but it's very clear that if you don't have an interpreter, what's the benefit of you speaking in tongues? Because nobody knows what you're talking about, right? That's the same chapter that it says that God's not the author of confusion, but of peace. I mean, the purpose of preaching, the purpose of speaking publicly in, in worship is the purpose of edification, right? That's why we do it. Like, we're not just giving a speech. You know, we're not reading off historical events, we are preaching publicly, whether I'm preaching publicly or someone else comes up here and they read the word of God or they take a couple minutes and, 
and give the word of exhortation. The purpose of that is that the body would be edified. Okay? Well, how is the body edified if they can't understand what you're saying? Right? It doesn't make any sense. So that's why he says, if you don't have an interpreter, don't speak in tongues. It just causes confusion. And there's nothing that's more confusing. That's why he was telling the, the Corinthian church, not only do you not need to speak in tongues unless you have an interpreter, but one of you needs to talk at a time. I mean, how, how crazy would it be if everyone felt like they had, the Spirit was moving them for five people to be talking in five different at the same time, and for some reason they were all five talking in unknown languages. <laughs> That's why he says, by the way, if, so, if an unbeliever comes in in the middle of that, I mean, like, okay, somebody comes into church, okay? A visitor comes in, and we want to we welcome them, we want to love them, we want to make them feel welcome. And if they come into a setting in that Corinthian church where you got five different people saying five different things, all talking in languages I can't understand, they're going to say, this doesn't make any sense. I'm never coming back here, right? <laughs> no, the purpose is that they can sit under the preaching of the gospel and be edified, right? Mark chapter 16. Mark chapter 16. Now, we need to make sure we read this in conjunction with Matthew chapter 28. We'll get there in a minute. <clears throat> Matthew chapter 6, uh, Mark chapter 16 and verse 15. Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. He that believeth not shall be damned. These signs shall follow them that believe. In my name they shall cast out devils. They shall speak with new tongues. They shall take up serpents. And if they drink any deadly thing, it shall not hurt them. They shall lay hands on the sick and they shall recover. Okay? They heal everyone. They shall recover. Now, in Matthew 28, it's describing the same admonition. Just before Jesus' ascension, Matthew 28, verse 18, All power is given unto me in heaven and on earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I commanded you, and lo, I am with you always even to the end of the world. Now, what's important about that? What's important about that is that the apostles were the ones that give, were given the authority to baptize, okay? And it's surprising that some very well-established principles in Christianity have now been questioned, but I mean, it's only within the last few years that people have had this idea that literally anybody can baptize. Well, no, there are people that are appropriately qualified to administer the ordinance of baptism. I mean, no one, at least not, you know, if you want to take a bath and feel better about, you know, you serving the Lord after you took the bath, you know, that, I mean, that, that's all well and good, I guess. But for you to be baptized into the body of the church, you can't just have your kids say, I believe in the Lord. Okay, well, let's go in the, let's go in the bathroom, we'll dump you, and you're going to be a member of the church. Like, you can't do that. Like, that's not according to the Word of God. So, there are certain people that have had the laying on of hands by a presbytery in an unbroken chain, back to the apostles. They are the ones that have the authority to baptize, okay? And that's who Jesus is talking to right here. So, therefore, who is this message that these shines are going to follow you? 
Who is it addressed to? The apostles. I mean, there's nothing in here that would indicate that this commission is given to all believers in all time until the second coming of the Lord. But nothing indicates that. This is a special signs that would follow the apostles who were given the authority to baptize. Okay, so what are these signs? And again, what was the purpose of God blessing the special manifestation of the Holy Ghost to be manifested in their lives through these identifying attributes? What's the purpose? It's because, we mentioned this so many times, wherever there's an open door, Satan is always going to send adversaries to try to thwart the advancement of the kingdom of God. So what's Satan going to do? He's going to send false apostles to try to deceive the people to not believe the true apostles. So how are you going to be identified as the true apostles? By these signs. This is the, the, the actions that will be exhibited in the apostles so people will be able to understand that you are a true prophet and distinguish you from the false teachers. Okay, so what are these signs? In my name, they shall cast out devils. And we see that in the Gospels. We see that all throughout the book of Acts. They did that by the power of Christ. They shall speak with new tongues. You know, surprisingly, tongues get us a lot of, a lot of attention. But there's only a very minimal examples of people speaking in tongues. You got people on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, maybe... Some people there in Samaria in, uh, in Acts chapter 8. And then you got Cornelius and the Gentiles in Acts chapter 10. That's it, really. You got some references to it in 1 Corinthians. But you really only have three, maybe four, examples of people speaking in tongues. <clears throat> and that identified them as the, as the true apostles. But I think much of speaking in tongues was just the practical need that if I'm going to spread my kingdom to all nations and my preachers are not trained in the language of these nations they're going to, I'm just going to bless them to be able to preach so people can hear it, right? I mean, it's just, that's just a practical hurdle that the Holy Spirit said, I'm going to take care of that, right? But now, once people believe in the same community that all speak the same language, why is there a need to speak in tongues? Well, the need has ceased, right? Once you have the establishment of the local church, there's no need for it. But there is when you have these, these apostles and evangelists going to establish churches in cities that they don't know the local language, okay? <laughs> then they shall take up serpents. I mean, how in the world Google associated Primitive Baptist with serpents is beyond... That's Satan. That's Satan, isn't it? I mean, that has to be Satan working uh, for Primitive Baptist to be associated with, with handling serpents, right? Um, but there is an example in Acts chapter 28. There's no examples of people actively messing with poisonous snakes and tempting the Lord. What there is an example of is a, is a serpent biting Paul, and by the way, you, you want to know how these signs work, by the way? They were in this, this unevangelized barbarian island, which I think those people, I think those people there on the island of Melita were, were born-again children of God because 
it says they showed no little kindness. I mean, everywhere you go, you're going to find some people that exhibit the agape love of God. Because God has a people of every nation, kindred, people, and tongue. And they showed up on this random remote island, and they showed them no little kindness. But those, those possibly born-again children of God, they were ignorant. They were ignorant now. So what happens? <laughs> they see somebody get bit by what they know to be a poisonous serpent. And they said, okay, well, he's dead. You know, we'll give him about five minutes and he's going to kill over dead. They said, wait a minute. Wait a minute, he's not dead. Now, in their ignorance, they said, oh, he's a god. You know, they didn't know any different. But do you notice that simple example of how someone is bit by a poisonous snake? The natural course of life is they're going to be dead in five minutes. They don't die. And even those, those heathen barbarians on the island Melita said, there is something that is a higher power of why he's not dead. You see that? I mean, that's a very simple example of the purpose of these signs. But you don't find anywhere in the Bible where people are actively picking up poisonous snakes and messing with them, right? Uh, that's just tempting the Lord, and the Lord tells us not to do that. Okay, drinking deadly poison, drinking a deadly thing. You know, if you're going to say this is, you know, something that I know if I drink it's going to kill me, don't be surprised if the Lord blesses you to reap what you've sown, right? I mean, uh, these, these guys, these snake handlers up in the hills of like Kentucky or something that had a uh, cable show for a while, <laughs> you know, I watched it a couple times and they just, you know, they just acted as a fool and I guess they made, made some money, you know, off the contract with the TV station or something. But, and maybe he's, yeah, it's not for me to say if he's a child of God or not, but it was a little humorous to me, and this is probably just my vanity, my sinfulness, but it was a little humorous to me that a few years later I saw a headline that this guy died of a snake bite. <laughs> I mean, you know, if you mess with the snake long enough, the snake, the poisonous snake's going to bite you. You're not an apostle. <laughs> you don't have this gift. You mess with poisonous snakes long enough, you're going to die, right? And don't be surprised if you choose to drink poisonous things that the poison kills you, right? But I don't think that this, any of these is, is saying that you are actively choosing to, to partake of a, of a deadly thing or you're choosing to do that. I could just envision these men that just, they made it their life. They hated the Apostle Paul so much. Some of them made a covenant that said, we're not going to eat or drink until this guy's dead. And they had to break their covenant because uh, they weren't able to do that. But I can just envision many of them trying over the years to poison Paul. I guarantee they tried to poison him. And I can just envision them watching him drink. You know, they put the poison in there. Paul didn't know anything about it. He drinks it. And they expect him to kill over dead. And he's like, man, this tastes pretty good, right? You know, and they're like, man, we just can't kill this guy. Because the Lord had a work for them to do. The Lord had a work for them to do. And he was going to providentially, unnaturally protect them because of the amazing work that he had for them to do in the kingdom. Um, let's go to Acts chapter 3. Acts chapter 3, yeah. I wanted to leave myself more time for this. Um, I believe that when we, when we talk about things like this, uh, we always want to speak the truth in love, right? We don't want to be disparaging of anyone. And I believe typically the best way to do this is you, 
you explain clearly why maybe things you've heard are incorrect, but you need to spend the majority of your time not harping on people for being wrong, but telling people what's right. <laughs> and unfortunately, I haven't left my enough, myself enough time uh, to, to articulate this the way that, that I want to, but I believe it is very important in the environment of Christianity that we're in today that we understand that the, the Pentecostal movement, the charismatic movement, is not the proper interpretation of Scripture. Okay. By the way, a little side note, charisma, charismatic, it comes from the Greek word charisma is translated gift. All throughout, the new, and it doesn't just talk about spiritual gifts, it talks about the free gift, the gift of eternal life, that, that word is charisma. And that now, that uh, idea of the miraculous manifestation of those spiritual gifts has now been associated with being a charismatic. Well, that Greek word just means a gift. And I'll tell you, we believe in spiritual gifts. We believe in spiritual charisma, if you will, just not the miraculous manifest that was for a specific time and for a specific purpose. And there is no need for that sign and purpose now because Jesus Christ has been resurrected. And by the way, by the way, how is the church identified here in the world? What is the sign that identifies the true church? It's not speaking in tongues. It's love. It's love. That is the sign that identifies the true church. We're going to get to that before we close. Okay, Acts chapter 3. Acts chapter 3. We have a healing of a lame man that was physically healed. And uh, we're going to have to just kind of brush through this a lot quicker than I want to. But there's some language here that I believe perfectly exemplifies the kind of impact that the kingdom of God should have on people in a spiritual sense. We're in a spiritual kingdom. This is talking in a natural sense. But um, in a spiritual sense, this is the kind of impact that we should have on people in the kingdom. <clears throat> this is a lame man that everyone knew this guy was lame. They walked by him every single day. And that's why when he was physically healed, there was no way for these Pharisees to deny the authenticity of this miracle. And that was when the apostles had the privilege to stand up and say, we didn't do this. Jesus Christ of Nazareth, through his power, we did this. Okay, But you have a lame man who was there at the gate of the temple every single day. Acts chapter 3, <clears throat> verse 4. Peter fastened his eyes upon him, said, look on me. He gave heed unto them, expecting to receive something of them. And Peter said, silver and gold have I none, but such as I give, I give unto thee in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and lifted up. And immediately his feet and ankle bones received strength. Okay? This is a man that was lame. And I'll tell you, there are a lot of people that are lame on their Mephibosheths down in Lodabar. They are lame on their feet. And the place that they should come and they should seek healing is the kingdom of God and the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'll tell you, when you come into that setting and we hope the Spirit of God is moving and they feel that, when they believe that, I'll tell you, you may be walking around being crippled by addiction and alcoholism and being addicted to drugs or 
pornography. There are multitudes of things that make you lame in discipleship here and there. But I'll tell you, when you come in the kingdom of God, there is something that gives you strength to overcome that lameness. And not just to get up. I mean, it is, you want to talk about a miracle. He didn't have to go through six months of therapy to be able to walk. He immediately started jumping up, walking and leaping and praising God. And every single person that had ever seen this lame man said, how in the world did this happen? And the apostles had the blessed privilege to tell them, by the power of God. <laughs> by the power of God. Let's read verse 16. Acts chapter 3 that now, now Peter has the privilege of expounding upon this to the people that have seen this man, this man healed. And I love this language here. Acts chapter 3 and verse 16. His name, um, let's back up to verse 14. You denied the Holy One and the just and desired a murderer to be granted unto you and killed the Prince of Life, whom God hath raised from the dead, whereof we are all witnesses. And his name, through faith in his name, through faith in the name of Jesus Christ, hath made this man strong, whom ye see and know, and yea, the faith that is by him hath given this man perfect soundness in the presence of you all. Where does this strength come from? It comes from faith in Jesus Christ. And there was a note, this, this feeds right back into evangelism that we've been talking about. Because there is a noticeable difference in the life of this man that everyone around him can see. And he had a, a zeal and an earnestness and a desire to tell everyone about what these apostles through Jesus Christ had done for him. And the, the, the effect was so noticeable to the people around them, they inquired and said, what is different about you? And the answer was Jesus Christ. Now, what made me strong? What, what, what allowed me to overcome all of these obstacles and these addictions and these, this crippling lameness that I have in my life? It's the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the kingdom of God. And we have the blessed privilege to tell people about that. Again, this feeds right back into evangelism. You know, there should be, in the kingdom of God, there should be things when the Spirit of God is moving in a powerful way that people hear about that and they, they say, wow. And we've, got, we've had some of those in the Primitive Baptist Church, you know. Um, our dear friends over at Zion Church in Gordo went from one member to within just a couple years having a 50-member church and thriving, new building. People hear that and they're like, wow, how about that? <laughs> Bethlehem Church, eight members. Now they got well over 100, new building, thriving, baptizing people all the time. You hear that, and you're like, wow. Praise God, right? I mean, you look at that, and you're like, okay, well, I'm sure Sister Lorraine, I'm sure she mapped out a really good plan and a five-year plan uh, to grow the church. And you know what? I'm sure Sister Lorraine executed that plan to perfection. <laughs> Nobody looks at that story and says that. They say, that's the power of the reviving spirit of God, right? That God, only God could do that. <laughs> you know, you hear stories about, uh, about Danny Wisner. Or Danny Wisner, who went from uh, being a, 
um, being a bouncer down on Bourbon Street to preaching the gospel within a, just a couple of years. All these people that came from all these different backgrounds and God had a powerful movement of the Holy Spirit in their life and they have the privilege to, to have the witness and the testimony to say, it's not anything of myself. It's solely the power of God and the glory of God. And God will, when His Spirit is moving powerfully in His kingdom, you're going to have testimonies like that. Brother Martin Anyani, that the Lord used in Kenya to, to, I mean, just amazing what the Lord's doing over there in Africa. And that spark started because Brother Martin was, was an alcoholic and abusing his wife and living a very ungodly life. And then all of a sudden, he, he woke up with conviction over things that he didn't have that conviction the day before. You know that's evidence of? The sovereign work of immediate Holy Spirit regeneration. He didn't, ask, he didn't ask for it. He didn't pray the Lord into his heart. All of a sudden, there was a change that was noticeable to people around him. And that was the spark that started the revival in Africa. As by the providence of God, he was blessed to contact Brother Vernon Johnson in Little Old Denton from the Baptist Church in Little Old Denton, Texas. And there are many other stories of that, okay? But when the Spirit of God is moving, people should see things in our life and in the testimony of the church that is identifying that God is moving there. And we pray that that'll be the case. One more thing before we, before we close. We've said that uh, we said that <clears throat> the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the only sign we need, okay? We don't live by signs, we live by faith. Write that down. We don't live by signs, we live by faith, okay? What is the identifying attribute? What is the sign that sets apart the true church today? 1 Corinthians chapter 13, the last, church, last verse of chapter 12 but covet earnestly the best gifts, I show unto you a more excellent way. There's something that identifies the church here in time. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not charity, I am become as a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. Though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, that though, though I have all faith so that I can remove mountains and have not charity, I am nothing. Though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor and though I give my body to be burned and have not charity... It profiteth me nothing. Then, that in conjunction with John chapter 13 and verse 35. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples. Because you run around in circles and speak in unknown tongues. Because you heal people. Because you cast out devils. What is the identifying attribute of the disciples of Christ here in the kingdom of God? It's not miraculous sign gifts. If you have love, one to another. And we need to love our enemies and we need to love our neighbors. But this is talking about the way we love one another in the church. In the church. Yes, we need to love our, our enemies. We're called to do that. But the identifying attribute that is a sign when people come into this church is the way that we treat one another in the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay? That is what identifies us here in this world. Not these miraculous sign gifts, the way that we love one another in the body of Christ. May God bless us to do that to his honor and glory. We thank you for listening to today's message. 
and invite you to visit Macedonia Primitive Baptist Church for worship services every Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m. Macedonia is located at 11 Staten Road on Highway 15, five miles north of Ackerman, Mississippi. For further information about Macedonia Primitive Baptist Church, you may visit our website at macedonia-pbc.org.